That's the things that I've mentioned uh, before, and that is dealing with particularly the nature of the Psalms, and it's certainly true here. And, and it is this, that the Psalms are the response of a regenerate heart to God, the truth of God, the experience of God, the knowledge of God. They're, they're an honest response to Him. Not everything in the Psalms is as neat and orderly as we, we think it should be or in our own lives. In other words, it is the reality of living under the lordship of God, under his kingship, under his majesty, while at the same time being in a world of complexities, in a world of confusion, a world that we don't always understand his providences and where we don't even always understand our own heart. And so the response that we see here is of a believing heart. It is the response of the heart of those who are in covenant relationship with God. And in every part of Scripture, we have the truth of God that's presented to us, and that would be doctrine. In other words, those that are settled, clear declarations of truths about who God is, about how he works, about the promises that he makes. And that word doctrine is, is maybe for some of you come from this background, is like, a, is like a dirty word. It's like, it's not four letters, but it's like a four-letter word. How many letters are there? It's like a six-letter word. <laughs> We'd say whatever. But in other words, the idea is that doctrine somehow is this evil thing. It, ki it kills the spirituality. So if we were to talk about the deep things of God and try to discern what Scripture teaches about the Trinity or about redemption or about the hypostatic union of Christ as God and man and how those natures relate to one another, another or about particulars of the atonement and the resurrection and the age to come and all of those things and to pour our mind into more precise thinking about those things is sometimes hated like that's the death knell to true spirituality and true relationship but scripture doesn't present that at all Christ himself was the embodiment of truth and yet he was the embodiment of love to God and those two things are always what should be married together a deep knowledge of God and a deep love for God and they are in fact so wedded together that the more slight our knowledge of God, the more slight our love to God will be and our comprehension of him. And so I, I mention that because in the Psalms, we are, and particularly in Psalm 139, directly confronted with divine truth, doctrine about God, but we are confronted with it in a way, not that it's taught in some sort of uh, textbook kind of way, but the way that the doctrine of God and the truth of God's nature works itself out in the soul of those who know him and, and how it works out uh, in our own lives. It's the response of, again, the regenerate heart lived out with all the complexities and the struggles of life. That's lived out was the reality of sin, but also the reality of hope and the promises of God. And so it is, uh, in some ways, the truest reflection of how doctrine should affect us. Doctrine is, uh, if we kind of keep D words here, doctrine is doxological. In other words, doctrine, truth about God, the teaching about God should leave us to worship. And everybody believes something about God. Even those who in the church want to downplay doctrine, uh, they, they have a doctrine. The only question is, is it right? Is it deep? Is it true? Is it consistent with Scripture? We want to, though, be those who don't shy away from thinking about God 
and using our brains uh, in a focused and in a, in a challenged way to think about who God is because we know the more we do that, the more we're brought into his glories and the more we love him and trust him and worship him. And so we're going to spend just the next uh, few weeks looking at Psalm 139 and see how the doctrine of God's knowledge, the doctrine of God's presence, the doctrine of God's providence, the doctrine of God's wrath uh, affects us and should affect us in ways that it's lived out uh, in our lives. So before we get into it, let's read it together and then... We'll uh, cover this morning the first part, uh, verses 1 through 6 uh, this morning. And this is the doctrine of God's knowledge and how it is a delight to the soul of the regenerate person. Read with me beginning in verse 1. We'll read the entire psalm, however, for context. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O oh God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand when I awake... I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. We're going to look at this under two broad categories. Our delight in the Lord and our devotion to the Lord. And we're going to do this through David's own experience of coming into a greater awareness or an expression of his awareness of the majesty of these attributes and the glory and the holiness of God. We'll look this morning at the first part of 
Our delight in God for who He is. Our delight in God for who He is. The specific attributes of God that are set forth in this psalm have this overall tone in the heart of David and in the heart of every regenerate believer of wonder and awe. And this is particularly precious, these expressions of God's nearness to David, because most likely it's not for certain. This is one of those psalms where it's, you don't know the exact context, but it's even a, a suggested and likely that this is in the context of his, as was common in his life as king, being wrongly accused, being uh, wrongly persecuted uh, by others. You kind of get that there at the end when he says about God's dealing retribution on his enemies, which are the enemies of God. So this is really maybe an inward expression of David's own experience of taking refuge in God in the midst of difficulties and in the midst of, of trial. And we, as I mentioned earlier, need to understand this psalm, as with all of the psalms, in the context of covenant. God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant, then, is to say, in the context of redemption and relationship. So David is praying this, and this is, is going to be important to note, uh, in the context of one who is redeemed, who knows the redemption and the forgiveness of the Lord. We, we looked at that a few weeks ago, how, how blessed is the man who's, to whom the Lord does not impute their sins and their iniqui his iniquity, who is, in other words, forgiven. And so David speaks as a, re, a forgiven sinner who's in relationship based on God's saving promises and actions for him. And this is important to know because the attributes of God that are delighted in here by David are the same attributes that should be a cause of great fear and trepidation in those who don't know God or even in a believer who is not walking righteously with God. So these, these attributes either produce worship and praise, or they should produce fear. Same God, but it depends on our relationship with him, where we stand before him. And so that's why I mentioned that when David prays these things, and when he says these things, he's doing so as one who knows the forgiveness of their sin, one who is redeemed. And we'll, we'll bring that out in both those sides. That is, of those, the response of an unbeliever, how they apply and how they apply to a believer as we go throughout. But for the believer, these truths of God are a means of great worship. So let's notice first then, under his delight in God, his delight in God's perfect knowledge. His delight in the fact that God's knowledge is perfect. God's knowledge is incomprehensible. God's knowledge is infinite. That's the first thing he delights in, or that we'll notice. And notice here that the idea of God's knowing him is centered to what he's experiencing. He says, you have known me in verse 1. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Intimately acquainted with his ways. You know it all in verse 4. Everything about him, every detail of his life. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What David is experiencing is this incomprehensible, infinite, perfect knowledge of God. Uh, and particularly as it relates to his own life. 
And there is a term here that's for knowledge that it's, it's used in a variety of ways. It's not only used in this way, but it is also uh, noted many times for being used in the way of a knowledge by experience, an intimate knowledge. So uh, a common illustration that's given is, is when it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. This is the term. It means he knew her intimately. It means he knew her in a unique way. And so this is an idea, one, one idea of this term and how it's applied here is that it's an intimate knowledge. It is a knowledge of, it is a knowledge of, it's a real knowledge, even a knowledge of experience in a sense. It's a knowledge that is perfect because it is a knowledge that in every moment includes not only absolute complete knowledge of the present, but a knowledge of everything past, a knowledge of everything future, knowledge of everything exactly as it is. It is in every way a perfect knowledge. Theologians sometimes call this, do you know the word? Omniscience. You must have heard that word. Theologians call this omniscience, which is simply to say that God is all-knowing, that God is all-knowing, that he knows all things. Uh, God's omniscience, this all-knowing reality of God, is a part of God's very nature as infinite. God is an infinite being. We've talked about that, which means that God knows no bounds. There's no limits to who he is. There's, there's no part where God ends or some part of God has its completion. It's, it's, a, it's an idea, it's a concept that we can't really even fathom outside of, I mean, we can intellectually state it, but to understand that is, is another level. And so when we say God is an infinite being and we connect that to his knowledge, it means that God's knowledge is boundless. There's no limits. It would be impossible for God not to know something and to not to know it perfectly and not to know it as it is. He is an infinite being. His knowledge is infinite and so he knows all things. There is no limit to what he knows. There's no conceivable or actual boundaries to his knowledge. Again, that's on a plane different than us. One has defined it, I don't know if this can come up, uh, on the screen, this way. And I think, I think this is one of the simplest uh, definitions uh, for us, is that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. If you want a simple definition of omniscience, that's what it is. God knows all himself and all things created and all things possible in one simple and eternal act. He simply knows. He's infinite, he infinitely knows, and he necessarily has infinite and perfect knowledge. Here's another definition. It's not up there. I'll just read this one to you. One has said it this way. He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. There's no limit. It is an infinite knowledge. It is a boundless knowledge. It is a complete knowledge. It is a true knowledge. This is what David's experiencing here. And this knowledge of us and all the things that God knows, and particularly his knowledge in relation to his moral creatures, those who bear his image, is not merely mechanical or intellectual. Sometimes this idea of God's knowledge is broken up into the categories of what God, his knowledge that is necessary and his knowledge that is free. His necessary knowledge are those things that God simply knows because he's God. And then his free knowledge is that knowledge of God where he knows all all things possible, all things in the, in the way that they could be, things that he would do that he didn't do, those kind of, those kind of things. 
mean, he knows everything. He knows everything. That's, he knows all things possible. He knows all things as they actually are. And he knows all things as they will be. And he knows it perfectly at all times and in every way. But again, it's not a mechanical or an intellectual knowledge. It is a piercing and engaging knowledge in every detail of our life. It's a knowledge that not merely is observant of the externals of our lives, but is intimately aware with our inner lives as well. It's the gaze, you could think of it this way, of an infinite being. And think about this. It's the gaze of an infinite being, the infinite God of the universe, on your life particularly, specifically. He is looking at your life with intense interest. So let's note a few parts of that as David talks about it here in verses 1 through 6. And it would note this first, that it's intentionally personal. It's an intensely personal knowledge. It's not a vague knowledge. It's not simple. Gen- it's not just a general knowledge. It is an intensely personal knowledge. Look at what he says in the opening line. You have searched me, and by you have known me. Look at the first person all throughout. It's when I sit down, I rise up, my thought, my path, my lying down, my ways, my tongue, you know it all. Where can I go from your spirit? If I ascend, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I make my bed, there your hand will lead me. It goes all the way throughout. David is saying, this is a knowledge that I feel intensely within myself of God, of what he knows about me, of his gaze about me. It is... It is intensely personal. He knows him not merely as one among, many, one among many, but as an individual. He certainly here is praying as the king, but he's praying as a king who's representative of all of God's covenant people, and they would sing this together as a nation. So what David is saying of himself applies to all of you. They would all connect with that and say, God knows me in this same way, and I can celebrate with David. And we would certainly say that as believers as well. It should be an incredibly fearful and awe-inspiring reality to know that the infinite God of the universe has his eyes directly on you. That should impact us deeply. Let's know some other things about these, this personal knowledge. First of all, it means that he knows the details of our life. He knows the details of our life. Look at what he says. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, or my sitting down and my rising up. Now, this could refer to activities like sitting down to eat or sitting down to study and rising up. Some think that. But most, most likely, this is just a general statement of God knowing exhaustively the details of our lives. He knows our habits. He knows our patterns. He knows our routines. He knows where we go. He knows who we are with. He knows what we eat. He knows our bedtimes. He knows our get-up times. And he knows everything in between those times. He knows every single possible detail about your life. There's not one detail about your life, details that you've forgotten about, whether it's a detail about your life now or 50 or however old you are, sometime in the past, that he's that he does not know and he knows it all in immediately and fully and completely. He knows every, every pattern of your life. Now again, for the unbeliever, this should be a thought that is incredibly sobering. So incredibly sobering. 
It should be a warning. It means then that there is nothing, and we, of course, as believers can feel it too, particularly if there's something unrighteous in our life, that there is nothing done in secret that is not fully observed by God. Not just known about as if somebody reported to him what was happening in some distant part of his kingdom. Is, is nothing done in our life that God doesn't have immediate and direct knowledge of and is not observing in that very moment. There is, there is nothing secret about our lives. Listen to the way that Moses responded to this. He said, and now this is R, he's speaking as an Israelite and as the nation, certainly applies to individuals. He says, you have placed our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. So you think about this. He's saying here to the nation, don't think that your sins are going unnoticed by God. That when you sin, it's as if you were doing it right in front of God. In fact, that we are. There is nothing, nothing hidden in from God. Let me, let me give you the way that Jeremiah talks about this. He says in Jeremiah 23, verse 24, he says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? You know my sitting down, you know my rising up, you know everywhere I go, everything I do. Is there any way that we could hide from the Lord? And there's not. Believers all the time thinks that they get away because they, it was done in secret. Nobody else knew. There is no such thing as something done in secret. That doesn't even exist in the light of who God is. For the believer, it's a warning too, and of course, an encouragement. If, if you are sitting here this morning and have some secret deed or sin in your life that you're doing, and you think, well, nobody, I got away with that one. <sighs> nobody else saw it. That's not true. God saw it, and he's waiting for you to deal with it. But it's also an encouragement, and that's primarily how David means it here. This kind of knowledge of God, this personal God, knowledge of God about the details of his life, it's meant to be an encouragement. It meant, it's meant to be that there is no part of my life that is hidden from you, and I would want no part of my life hidden from you. It's meant to say that God's care is always with you. That's kind of how he means it here. It's very similar and actually the same as what Jesus said to his disciples when he wanted to encourage them in persecution. Remember he said this in Matthew 10. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are numbered, so do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. God doesn't have to count. He's not up there with a little, you know, like, you know, marking down Roman numerals or something for the hairs of your head or the sparrows who fall. That's part of his necessary knowledge. He simply knows it. But to say that he simply knows it does not mean that he is disinterested. He is incredibly interested. His whole point of Jesus saying that is he knows you in such detail. He knows the hairs of your head. He knows his creation in such detail that when a small insignificant bird dies somewhere, he knows that. But then he looks to his own people, his covenant people, you, and he says the reason that's important is because God cares for you. When you're in the midst of persecution to them, you're not alone. When you're in the midst of a trial, you're not alone. God knows the detail of that. God knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening to you. He is not uninterested in it either. He knows it with concerned love. 
In the context of Jesus saying that, he's saying your father knows that with an intimate concern about you and what you're experiencing. But he, even more than that, he knows in this personal knowledge the details of our inner life. And here we'll spend a bit more time. He knows the details of our inner life. Look at what he says. He says, you know when I sit down and rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You understand my thought from afar. And again, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. What does that mean to say he understands our thought from afar? Well, it's a little more than what we would even read just on the surface. Well, that you could get there. The term here actually is used in a variety of ways. It's translated thought here correctly so. But it has the idea of purpose. It has the idea of intent. It has the idea of aim, longing, striving, or different ways that it's described of once. The idea is not simply that God knows your thoughts as a, as a datum, that is, as a fact, as a piece of information. It is that God understands in that thought the truest and deepest intention and desire of what is behind that thought. And that's piercing. So he doesn't know our thought as in like, you know, that there's, there's some information that just popped up on the computer screen. It says when he says he knows our thoughts, the idea is he knows why you thought that. He knows what the intention was. He knows what the goal was. He knows the whole complex of desires in the heart that produced that thought. He knows it all. And again, this is true of all people, but it's particularly, but it's true of both, it's true of all people, both believers and unbelievers. One of the ways that this has always stood out in my own mind, or always struck me, one of the ways, is God's pronouncement of judgment at the flood. He said this, you'll remember this. What was God's evidence of the wickedness of man? It was certainly their deeds. It was no doubt the things that they did. But he said this, and this was the most piercing indictment that God had for why he judged the world the way that he did in the flood, and for that matter, why he will in the future through fire. It says this, Genesis 6, 5. The thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil continually. The thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil continually. And for the believer, again, this unbeliever, this should be a matter of grave concern. For God knows every detail of your thought life, every hidden desire, every secret motivation, everything that is behind what you say or do. And of course, this is for all of us. Proverbs says, the plan in the heart of man is deep water. That's Proverbs 25. In other words, it can be hidden. It can be concealed into that individual. And even always, that individual doesn't know all the reasons of why they do what they do. But even what they are conscious of, Proverbs also says this, that as a man thinks within himself, so he is. In other words, you are not, I am not, no one is simply who you necessarily present yourself to be, but it is, if it's inconsistent with how you think within yourself, God looks right past the externals and looks and says, how do you think in yourself? How do you reason within yourself? What are you in the privacy of your own thoughts? So where, no, where nobody else has access to except you, Scripture says that's who you really are, and God sees you there. God sees not as man sees, but God looks at the heart. Jesus demonstrated this during his own ministry, this knowledge of God, of our inner life. 
in Matthew 9, 1 through 6, that's the account of where uh, Jesus was teaching and he was in a house and they let a man down through the roof. Do you remember that? They let a man down through the roof and it was somewhat of a chaotic scene because it was so crowded inside the house and then crowded outside the house and he's teaching. You can imagine it was kind of stuffy in there and then this dirt's you know, flying down through the roof in the middle and here comes this guy being let down on a mat and the friends were there. And so you remember the scene. And it says, though, that when that happened, Jesus looked at the, he, he, he looked at the friends, their faith, and he said, seeing their faith, do you remember? He said to the man who was on the pallet, your sins are forgiven. And now when he said that in the room, all of the leaders were just kind of, they were sitting around in the room and they were silent, Matthew tells us. They were silent. They didn't say anything. They're just looking at him and you can kind of imagine, uh, you know, the gaze that they had, this sort of snarling kind of gaze in their eyes. But they didn't say anything. But then Matthew notes, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? You see, he, he knew, he looked right past the silence into the very loud thoughts of their hearts and saw that it was evil. So God is neither distracted nor deceived by the external life. So this is on the negative side, but I want to address this first. Because there is in here for the believer worship, but there is warning for the unbeliever. It means that whatever is on the external uh, God is not deceived. He told the leaders, as you remember, that you are on the outside whitewashed tombs, but on the inside you're what? Full of dead men's bones. He knew what they thought. He knew their desires. He knew what they really wanted. And so they knew this psalm. They certainly knew Psalm 139. No doubt they used it in their own private worship. No doubt they used it as a part of the corporate worship of the nation of Israel. They heard all of that. They would have heard that David was saying, you know my thoughts from afar. But somehow, because they were dead in sin, that didn't have any piercing quality in their life. And so they could easily live this duplicitous life where they could say, well, I know that David said that in Psalm 139 but I'm going to go ahead and hold on and cherish all of this sin in my heart while I try to keep this outward facade and while everybody goes, oh, how spiritual and how knowledgeable you are and inside God says, how wicked are you? How evil are you? You know that I see your thoughts. You know that I see you there and yet you do not repent and that this means then is that God's judgment is perfect. So when standing before the throne and books are open, every evil thought, every careless word will be presented as evidence of God's condemnation. But the other side of that is this. It means then when Christ suffered on the cross, every evil thought that we've had, every careless word that we've spoken, that he fully suffered for it so that we could be say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So God understands my thought from afar. It means he understands your intention. He understands your thoughts. He understands your goals. If you are an unbeliever, realize there is no escape from that. For if you are a believer with sin in your life, realize that God sees it and he will deal with us there. But if you are walking in obedience to God then, and you are truly regenerate, then we say with David and we say this as a means of comfort. We say this as a means of blessing that God would know our inner life. Because it assures us, even as David says here, that God, knowing the inner reality of my life, is also there leading me. He says in verse 5, you've laid your hand upon me. He can pray later in the psalm that we'll get to. Because God knows my inner life, he could say, try me and know my anxious thoughts. Lord, show me the things that I can't see. That's a comfort to me, to know that I can pray that to you and you can, you can know me better than myself and help me to walk, as he says here, in the everlasting way. So for the believer, this should be a comforting thought. It also should be a sanctifying thought. Let me just tease out just a few implications of this here. It's a sanctifying thought because to say, you understand my thought from afar, for us to pray that and to recognize it is a reminder that that is where the battle of sanctification takes place, is in your mind. Is in your mind. You know my thought from afar, so if we think that somehow we can foster a sinful thought life while doing things right on the outside and God is unconcerned, well, David says, no, you know my thought from afar. I can't do that. I can't, I can't have some secret world in my mind and my desires and think it's okay. No, because God, God knows that. And so in our sanctification, we must realize that it takes place, it begins in the mind, and we would, as Paul said, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But we would also take comfort to say, God, who knows my thoughts, we can go to him in prayer and say, God, help sanctify my thoughts through your word, as David Paul prayed, renew our minds. We are to renew our minds, but we can pray for God to help. But I want to pull out some other things, too. Notice here that when David says this, he does this in the context of prayer. He does this in the context of prayer. And he says, you know my thoughts. He says, you know my words, even before they are on my tongue. And so even as he prays this psalm to God, and even as we pray to God, we are reminded of this as well, that prayer is not a matter of giving God information. It's a matter of fellowshipping with God. It's a matter of expressing our covenant relationship with him in the totality of life. So Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6, 7 through 8 that when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. He says, but rather, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So that means that when you go to the Lord in prayer, you say the Lord already knows your thoughts. He already knows your request. He already knows the details of your life. You're not going there to inform God of something that he's ignorant of. You're going there to express covenant relationship with God and to pour your heart out before him and all of your needs and all of your desires and all of your wants and confession of your sin and all of those things. Not because, not because God needs that information, but because God desires for that relationship, for you to come to him. And yes, somehow in the mystery of his providence, he uses that, that he answers prayers and he withholds things when we don't pray. And so those are all true realities 
But Jesus uses this very example to say, so when we go to God, go to Him with that humble, circumspect, uh, circumspect uh, reality that says, God, I already know that you know these things, but I'm bringing them to you anyway. I'm praying to my Father who is in heaven, and I can rest things at the beginning of my prayer there. That you are my Father who has become that in an ultimate sense, as would later be revealed, through the Son. And so you're, you hear my prayer with care and you know my needs with mercy. It means that God knows the troubles and the sorrows and the desires of our heart. Do you know one of the most interesting things? And you can fit yourself where, where this is, but, but in talking to people uh, sometimes, uh, I, I like to emphasize uh, the need to be totally honest with God in prayer. Because sometimes we come to God in prayer in such a formalized manner, don't we? Maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Almost like I'm, I pray, we pray almost mechanically, almost the same little phrases uh, uh, generally, and then somehow think about here's a way to test that. Do you sometimes pray to God in kind of a general sense and then you really go open your heart up to a friend or someone else? And you start telling them all the details. Or maybe there were even things where you told them more. And then when you're lying in your bed, you're thinking of more details and more things you're aware of. But those things were never brought to God. And, and this is part of what I'm driving at here. We should talk to God honestly. That means of your sin, of your wrong desires, that means of your hopes, that means of the intentions of all of your deeds and actions as far as you can discern them within yourself. All of that should be laid out to God. He knows your thoughts. He already knows your intentions. And so in prayer, Jesus is reminding us, look, God already knows all that. David is. He knows your thoughts. When you pray to God, your prayer to God should be the most explicit prayer it could possibly be. And by explicit, I mean transparent and honest. He knows it. This is, this is how we need to pray to God. He knows the groanings of our hearts. He knows the groanings of our heart that come even as we suffer for our own sin in Psalm 38, 9. Just to give you a couple of examples. He says, Lord, all my desire is before you. All my sighing is not hidden from you. He knows that in our suffering. In Psalm 56, 8, we pray to God with the knowledge that he knows all of these things. He says in Psalm 56, 8, you have taken account of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? There is no grief that you have that God is not fully aware of. And so when we pray to him, we pray with that kind of confidence. Sometimes we're afraid, and this is just a, another part of this, to be honest to God about the sinfulness of our own thoughts. And we kind of try to conjure up the right attitude even in prayer. Instead of just going to God and saying, God, I don't desire you right now. Right now, this temptation is more important to me than you are. I'm feeling it. You know that. You know my intention. You know that I could be coming to you right now and what I'm saying with my mouth doesn't match up with what I'm desiring in my heart. Please forgive me and please help me there. Please help me to do battle with this. Please help me not to sin. That's the kind of honesty that I'm talking about. God, right now, I need you because this is the sin that's in my heart. This is how I want to walk in righteousness. And Lord, you know that I want to do that, but I'm, I'm struggling with it now. You understand my thought from afar, O oh Lord. You know what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. 
And when we go to the Lord in prayer and confusion, this knowledge of God for us is a great comfort to know that even when we pray to God as honestly as we can possibly pray to Him, we're still praying in ignorance. We're still praying in ignorance. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. Just listen, you're familiar. In the same way also, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And it's, there's, a, there's a whole Trinitarian reality that's going on there. But if you think about this one, on this idea of praying with this, this knowledge and, and praying honestly, is the Spirit says in first, uh, or it says in 1 Corinthians 2.10 that the Spirit searches even the depths of God. God is an infinite being. That's a statement of the Spirit's deity. It's also a, spa- it's a statement of His personality, His personhood. He does that... He does that as the person of the Holy Spirit, searches the depths of God. God is an infinite being. No created being can search the depths of God who is boundless and infinite and limitless, but the Spirit does. And it is that same Spirit that he says there in Romans 8, searches your heart and is within you. And what he's, the context there is that sometimes, even as we're going through life, our prayers are so confused. Have you ever been, have gone to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know what to pray. I don't even know how to think about this. I don't even know how to think about myself in this situation. And I need your help. And I'm going to trust that even as I pray that I know is full of ignorance in my prayer, that the Spirit really knows what's going on. And the Spirit is interceding with you with groans too deep for words. This isn't a charismatic thing. It's about, you know, ecstatic speech and prayer. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's saying that within the inner Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son, who also intercedes for us, and the Spirit who is within us, he understands. And the Spirit takes those realities of our confusion and God's will and he communicates and essentially prays for us to the Father and the Father hears because he knows what the mind of the Spirit is and he works in our life accordingly with wisdom. But all of that is here. You understand my thought from afar. You understand my intentions. He's saying this in prayer. He's saying, God, you know me thoroughly. You know everything that there is to know about me. I'm going to make one more note before I go into the second part, and this is just briefly. And, and, and this is important to note here, is that this perfect knowledge of God and of us, this knowledge that knows us so thoroughly and so perfectly, is the essence of Scripture. It's the essence of Scripture. And, and again, this is an important thing to know. Listen to how God takes this language and applies it to Scripture. I'm going to read it to you. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are laid bare before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Lord who knows the thought of of every person of, of, in bearing his image, the Lord who knows the intention of every single created moral being, angelic and human, God who knows all of these things is the God who has revealed himself in scripture to us. So when we spend time in God's word, 
not spending time in his word quickly to check it off or dutifully and di but disinterested or if we're only going there for some personal encouragement and not to meet the living God just to try to find something that'll boost us up for the day rather than to say I'm going there to meet God to see who he is so that I can be instructed I can be taught I can be corrected I can be trained I can be built up in righteousness when we go to God's word honestly we go to God's word with a correct understanding. It exposes every thought and intention of the heart and it speaks to every desire and issue of life. So when you go to scripture, even as the writer of Hebrews was saying, we should go there saying, this God who knows my thoughts, this God who knows my intentions has told me about them right here in his word. And so as I read, I'm saying, God, expose me, teach me. And if you don't have that experience with God's word, it could be because there's no spiritual life. That's always a possibility. It could be just because we've made it just this quick thing and we treat God's word sometimes like it's this magic, you know, spell book on Narnia or something. I'm just going to read this verse and it's going to magically... Have you ever asked us? Some people say, why do I read scripture and yet I'm still sinning in that area? I memorized five verses on it. Why am I still sinning in that area? Because you read it, but you didn't read it as the living and active word of God. You didn't let it do its work in you. There's a, yeah, we'll still sin and struggle, but if there's a dis disconnect between what we read and what we do, it's because we're not coming to it in the right way. And we're, he's given it to us to help us understand our own thoughts. So he says, you understand my thought from afar, you know my words. And scripture is a part of God saying, let me help you discern your own thoughts. I who know them, I'm going to help you discern them and help you figure them out so that you can walk righteously. Note next. Let me go a little quicker on this. It is an active knowledge. It is a personal knowledge. And here's the next category. It is an active knowledge. He says, you have searched, you have scrutinized, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. God is not passive in his knowledge of us, but he is energetic in engaging and searching us, uh, uh, our lives out. It has the idea here of intense interest because of deep relationship. It is the earnest interest of covenant love. It's the earnest interest of covenant love. You scrutinize my path. This idea for scrutinize or search has the idea of diligent, difficult probing. A kind of looking intensely to gaze upon what's really there. Jeremiah 17 gives an illustration of this. 17 9 and 10, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind and give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. You've searched and you've scrutinized. I mean, I can't understand my heart, but, but the Lord who's searching knows it. He's probing it. He sees it all the way through, even to the depths, and he is actively doing this. That's the idea here. It is an active knowledge. God isn't learning, searching to learn something, to discover something he doesn't know because he's ignorant. There are people who say that, open theism, if some of y'all have heard of that. Some haven't. Now you have, everybody in this room. And that's the idea that God has, one of the versions, is that God has kind of limited himself on what he can know, and so he's learning things about us with us. Now, he's a lot bigger, so he can do it with everybody all at the same time. But God is always learning, and guess what? God is also uncertain about exactly what we might think or do in the future. He doesn't really, because he, he doesn't really know, because we haven't done it yet. And that's what makes the relationship real and dynamic. 
Well, that's stupid. And, and it is even in the own context here. He's already said, you know my thought from afar. You know my words before I speak them. God isn't learning it when you actually do it. He's not learning anything about you. But he searches. What is the idea here then of searching and of scrutinizing and looking? The imagery is intended to communicate God's actively scrutinizing our lives and our actions, discerning and distinguishing the quality of our lives. That's what he's doing. He's not saying he's doing that to learn something. He's doing that so we know and in language that highlights the fact that God is actively discerning at every moment your life and your deeds and your intentions. That's the idea. Scrutinize, some of you may have a note in your Bible, is also a word for winnowing. Winnowing, separate the good from the bad. Captures the idea of sifting through something in order to find. You scrutinize or you winnow my path, my lying down. This is to say that God is always making discerning judgments of our actions, his knowledge. He distinguishes between what arises from a good principle and from an evil principle. He distinguishes what arises from a principle of faith and from a principle of unbelief. Within us, he knows it. He knows it. He knows it all. He never misjudges. He never misperceives. He's never confused or taken off guard. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. Oh, Lord, you know it all. And this kind of active searching makes God intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And again, we can be thankful if we're pursuing holiness because we appeal to this knowledge of God and his helping us with the battle of sin. We already noted that at the end. We'll get that more in a couple of weeks. Search me, O God. Know me. I want you to. I invite your searching. I'm not hiding from you. I'm asking you to search me and to reveal to me my own heart. And I know that you alone can do it because you're always discerning my needs. And again, this is the transparent honesty with which we should pray to God. One person said, I, I, on this idea of being honest before God, says hypocrisy is stupidity. <laughs> and there's some passages there, but that's the truth. Hypocrisy is stupidity. The only person we fool in hypocrisy is ourselves. That's the only person of consequence. Every aspect of our lives, he says then, in this, this searching, intimate knowledge of God, he says in verse 5, causes him to realize you have enclosed me behind and before and you've laid your hand upon me. This is divine knowledge, which is to say my whole life and existence is swallowed up in your divine knowledge, which includes your nearness and your active involvement and your real interest in every detail of my life. You've totally encompassed my life. Everywhere I look, every direction I look, everything that I consider, you are there, your knowledge is there, and there you've laid your hand upon me. In other words, there you have determined to work in my life and to so be involved with my life in a way that you will lead me. And here's the last part. It's a knowledge that exceeds our own self-awareness. Uh, verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. It's a personal knowledge. It knows the details of our life, our outer life, our inner life. It is an active knowledge. It's always searching, seeking, discerning, knowing. And it is a divine knowledge that exceeds our self-awareness. He says, it is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. In the end, to grasp the perfection of God's knowledge is to understand that he exists and knows us so comprehensively that exceeds our knowledge of of ourselves. 
He says, it's too wonderful for me. It's interesting, this term here, while not exclusively, but it predominantly refers to as what one has said, and I quote here, the acts of God, things that are beyond human capacity. It's often used to speak of this other transcendent ability or knowledge of God. Jacob said, as he wrestled with him, what is your name? And the man he wrestled with said, why do you ask me my name since it is wonderful? That was a, that was a declaration of deity. That was a declaration of deity. And it first points then to the transcendent glory of God, listen, that understands and exists on a level totally different than us. Here's what I want us to grasp and what helps us is to realize this. God's knowledge is just not simply more in degree, like we know this much and God knows that much. Like we we know here. That's not how it works. God works with a knowledge that is so infinite and glorious and majestic that it's on its ability of understanding that's on another plane it's different in kind not merely degree but in kind so perfect it is here's what he says in Isaiah 55 as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater so will my word which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what it is that I desire and what he accomplishes is a product of his own divine knowledge which leaves us in mystery if you go back up he says this for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts God exists on a totally different plane. And so when confronted with this perfect knowledge of God, we simply say, "Ah." now why is that comforting? It's comforting in one reason because it means this, that the mysteries of life and God's working in this world and in our lives are not a mystery to God. That's comforting because we're in confusion. We're in darkness. I don't know about you, but most of the things I just simply don't understand in terms of providences or why it worked out this way and not the other way and so on and so forth. Who can understand that? And to know that, well, God knows, and God knows in a way that I can have confidence that, ex- that far exceeds my ability to even comprehend. So I can't take my human reason, because people do this. They get mad at God. Why did God do that way? Or that wasn't fair that God did this. Or that doesn't make the sense that God did this. And even believers sometimes can get angry at God and put him on the stand like, you have to explain to me. We can humbly ask God, but when he says, knowledge is too wonderful for me, we realize, God, I don't understand. It is absolutely confusing to me, but you exist on a level where your thoughts are not my thoughts. You have a comprehension of the entire eternity and universe and yourself and life that I couldn't even begin to enter into. I wouldn't even know what to do with it. I wouldn't even be able to go to that plane. And that's the idea of trust. It's too wonderful for me. It is, a, it is a high knowledge. Job said this in Job 42. He said this. Job answered the Lord. And remember, Job suffered. Job suffered greatly. And he says at the end of it, when God just kind of humbled him and said, who are you to ask me? If you're so smart, Job, let, tell me some of these things. And Job's just like, I'm uh, Sorry. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides, this is Job speaking, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things that are too wonderful, same root, 
too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here now, and I will speak. And what is he going to say when he speaks? He says, I'll ask you, and you instruct me. We're going to turn things around, Lord. I was going to instruct you. Didn't work out so well. So now I'm just going to ask you and say, look, teach me. Remember, he's still suffering at this point. I'm going to ask you and you instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract. I repent in dust and ashes. Lord, I'm not going to question you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to yield and bow down before you. Because your knowledge is so perfect. It is so wonderful. And I yield to it in every way, gladly. And it means as well then that God knows our failures. He knows the reality of our heart. And I'll just mention this, John 21, 7. Peter failed. Peter, Peter failed miserably. He was ashamed before the Lord. The Lord kept questioning him, do you love me? And finally Peter said what to Jesus? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know, all I can appeal to you, Lord, is your knowledge. I can't look at my actions and say that I love you. I can't look to what I did because I just failed big time. Big time. But I'll look to your knowledge and say, but you know that I love you. And so the wonder of wonders is, is that even in our sin, even in this perfect knowledge, God loves us in the Son. And he's determined to take his love for his son and through the work of redemption to bring us into fellowship with his son and say that even though I know you this perfectly, in my son I love you because I love my son and he's redeemed you and I'm going to make you like him one day. And so I'm going to end with just this word. This is a quote. And then we'll end. The apprehension then of God's infinite knowledge should fill the Christian with adoration. The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Oh, the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. And that's David's heart. Let's pray together. And I did go a couple minutes over, so uh, we have fellowship dinner afterwards, let me mention. So come down and join us for that. And uh, John, I'll make the prayer closing uh, benediction if I could this time. Father, we thank you that it is true that though you know us perfectly, we know if it weren't for divine grace, we would be forever lost and would have no way to approach you, even in prayer, but in Christ, who has borne the consequence of all of our wicked thoughts and our wicked deeds, has now made a way that covered in Christ, we can come to you as sons and daughters, and we can know this that David prayed about, who knew the promise of your redemption as well and the reality of it, though in a lesser sense than we even know. But because of Christ, we can come and say, you who know my thoughts and my words can know that even in our sin, as Peter with Peter, that we still love you, we who know you. We fail you. We come to you broken, but we can say, but oh Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I really want to do what is right. Help me to walk in obedience. And we thank you that we can have fellowship with you. And that that doesn't cast us out of your presence, but when we come honestly like that, it draws us into your presence and in fellowship and to worship and to praise and to the kind of trust that gives us strength throughout all of the changing circumstances of life. And Lord, for those who are here who don't know you, who somehow think that it's okay to reject Christ, who somehow think and convince themselves in their mind that it'll be okay in the end, 
I'll just enjoy right now. We show them the, the foolishness of that and that every thought and deed will be brought to account. And either that sin was paid for by Christ on the cross or it will be paid for by that soul for eternity and draw them all the way to Christ and to know the freedom and the joy and the blessing of your covenant love in him. And to that end, I pray, Lord, and that you for your blessing on our time in fellowship and even now so uh, we can do this together. We thank you for how you've provided for us so abundantly, not only this time, but this food that we're going to go down and enjoy. Thank you for it. Bless our fellowship. May it be honoring to you and encouraging to our own hearts. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.